We do have an enemy. And yes, we can run into the strong name of our Lord. That is our tower. And the battle is the Lord's. And Praying and God's Word are all ways that God has given us to defeat the enemy. But it doesn't take away the enemy, at least right now, from our presence, does it? That will happen one day when He returns and takes us to heaven. And we're finally removed from the presence of sin at that point. But as long as we're in this world and in this body, we have the promise of power over sin, but we don't have the removal of the presence of sin, do we? And so we have an enemy. He's known as the great deceiver. He's known as a devouring lion. He's known as our arch enemy, Satan, the devil. And he wants to do nothing less, listen very carefully, than to take you out. Let me say that as clearly as I can without any question. He wants to take you out. He's not interested in just sidelining you or maiming you. He wants to completely kill and destroy your spiritual life. That's what he wants to do. That's your enemy. Now, sometimes this enemy comes to us in a devouring way, doesn't he? Peter said about Satan that he is sometimes a roaring lion walking about or prowling about looking for people he can what? Devour. We saw that in Joshua 7, right? Here's Achan and there's an open temptation. Here's the stuff that God said, don't touch it. Achan saw it. It's wide open. He takes it and... Satan devours him. It was a wide open front door kind of temptation. There was nothing deceitful or hidden about it. Satan got to Achan through just an open uh, temptation, a full frontal attack, shall we say. But other times, Satan comes to us in a deceiving way. And that's what Joshua 9 is about. Will you turn there? Joshua chapter 9. And let's look at... The deceitfulness of our enemy and how sometimes he even uses people. And in one sense, they become pawns as he masquerades in front of us and makes us think and see and feel and taste and touch things that we're sure they're true, but if you were to look a little closer, you'd find that in the details... The devil is hiding. You ever heard the phrase, the devil's in the details? If you have, raise your hand, would you? I'm going to take a poll here. Good. About half of you have heard it. It simply refers to a, a situation where on the surface things look pretty good. But if you read the fine print, that's kind of where failure lurks. If you're a businessman here, you're probably grimacing now or perhaps smirking because you recall a deal where it looked really good on the surface and then you read the fine print or you read the extra pages and you realize this is not what I thought it was. I mean, they do this all the time at retail stores. I'm at Walmart on the end cap. There's a special. Watches. Lifetime warranty. $1.98. I'm thinking, dude, that's an awesome deal. Buy a watch for about $2, a lifetime warranty, I'm set. I go home, open the package, 
It shows me inside as I read the details of the warranty that to activate the warranty, I've got to send $5 in for shipping and handling. You with me? The devil's in the details, isn't he? In other words, sometimes we are only surface observers. And if we go behind the scenes or peel back the covers or, or look a little closer, we'll see that perhaps things aren't always what they appear to be. Such is the case in Joshua 9. You're there, aren't you? Let's look at this deceitful chapter, shall we call it, and the ruse of the Gibeonites. Joshua 9, chapter 1, excuse me, Joshua 9, verse 1. With your pen there handy, I'd encourage you as we start reading to draw a triangle on your teaching tool there in your worship folder. If you're somewhat new to First Family, it's a section in your worship folder, and we just leave that there for you to take notes each week and uh, write the things that God's Spirit would lead you to write, as well as what's on the screen behind me. And That'll help you follow along with our text, and you'll learn more as you write things down. So I'd encourage you to get a pen, some lipstick, some mascara, something, you know, blood, whatever. Write some notes here. We're in Joshua 9. This is what I call the Joshua 9 triangle, okay? And verse 14 is the apex of this chapter. It's where this chapter really culminates. So we're going to teach up to it, and then we're going to kind of teach away from it. And we'll come back to this primary verse in Joshua 9. Joshua 9, 1, the Bible says that when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, and these things refer to what happened at Jericho and Ai and the miraculous victories that God had accomplished for the Hebrews. It said when they heard about these things, then apparently these, uh, these five kings, these five nations, verse 2 says, they came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. They formed an alliance because they knew something. We can't beat them one-on-one, so we better double-team them. Now, in your Bibles, you probably ought to draw a line from Joshua 9-2, the very end of that, all the way over to Joshua 10-1, because really, that's the continuation of this story. The one strategy that these nations has, they had were to team up against Israel, and so that's picked up in, in chapter 10. But between 9-3 and 10-1 is the story of another kind of strategy that was taken in order to defeat Israel. And that was not the, let's join hands and try to beat them by, being, by there being more of them, but it was more, let's try to make them think that we're something we're not. Let's trick them. Look what Joshua 9-3 says. However, which shows you, We've got a new train of thought here. However, unlike the five who made an alliance to beat Israelites, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Or in other words, to a crafty trick. In fact, let me share with you this word ruse. It's an interesting word. It would be very, very similar to the New Testament Greek word for the word in Ephesians 6 when it says, when you stand, you should stand against the wiles of the devil. Ever heard that word? It means the crafty trickery of the devil. This word here in Joshua 9 is, is literally the Hebrew word for a wily. Now, that's kind of a hard word to say fast, isn't it? But if I said, man, you're a wily kind of guy, I would be saying you're crafty, you're, trick, you're a trickster. Much the same word is used in Ephesians 6. The devil is. He's a, he's a trickster. He's a deceiver. And so these Gideonites resorted to a... To a trick, a crafty turn of events whereby they could fool the the Israelites. Here's how it went. Verses 4 through 13 kind of lay out this ruse for us, this this trick. And I'm not going to read all the verses word for word except to highlight a few of them. It says that they went as a delegation 
You see that in verse 4? In fact, circle the word delegation and draw a line down to verse 11 where it says, Our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Here's one of the first lies these guys told. is They left the impression that they were more like an official envoy of the nation. And we're here somewhat in consultant type status to let you know that the citizens of Gibeon would like to make a treaty with you. In other words, they gave a false impression about who they really were. They, they weren't a delegation commissioned by the elders. They were just citizens hoping to get a break. But they knew if they came and pleaded for mercy, that wasn't going to work. And I'll show you why in a minute. So they kind of feigned their appearance. They made it out to be that they were something they really weren't. They kind of made their self-importance, uh, they kind of raised the stakes, shall we say. It's their first lie. So they had this appearance of, of being an official delegation, having come a long way. You can read about how they, they wore patched sandals. and They had this appearance that they were something they weren't. And then they said, finally, verbally, in verse 6, we have come from a distant country. Lie number two. They didn't come from a distant country. They actually came from a city named Gibeon just 25 miles away within the promised land territory that God had told Joshua to conquer. And they said, make a treaty with us. Well, verse 7 starts out pretty good. They, they seem to be on the right track. The men of Israel said, perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? And that's a legitimate question, by the way. In fact, jot this reference down. Deuteronomy 20 explains the process that the Israelites were to take when they were encountering nations. Now watch me here, okay? Don't lose me. Some historical facts for you. If the Israelites in their battle marches encountered a nation that was within the promised land, they had one option. It was to destroy that nation. If they encountered a nation outside the borders of the promised land, they had two options. They could go to battle with them or they could offer them a treaty. If they accepted the treaty, then they would live on these terms of peace. And that's explained elsewhere in the law as well. Now watch this. The Gibeonites must have known this part of the, of the law because when they came, they said, we're from a faraway land, knowing that Joshua then would have room to make a treaty. Are you with me? So they're asking, hey, now if you're really from around here, we, don't have, we can't make a treaty. So you better be telling us the truth. And they said, oh yes, we're your servants, verse 8. Then Joshua asked them a very specific question. Who are you and where do you come from? And notice what they do in verse 9. They repeat what they said in verse 8. We are your servants and we've come from a very distant country. Now, from what I read, they didn't answer his question. Are you with me? It's like a, like a political debate. They repeat a previous answer which actually means nothing. Are you with me? Now, I'm not real sure why Joshua at this point didn't say, excuse me, I didn't, think I, kept, I didn't catch the name of your country. Where are you from? For some reason, he seems to bypass their lack of an answer. And I'll tell you why I think he does this. This is speculation here on my part. But notice what they continued to say. They repeated their answer. And then they said, Oh, because of the fame of the Lord, you're God. And they began talking about all the things that God had done east of the Jordan. Watch this, guys. First of all, I think that Joshua kind of stopped Probing for one reason. I think they got to a soft spot. And this is speculation. This is just my own opinion. But as a pastor, and as a person that feels very passionate about the cause of the Lord, sometimes when people really show themselves to be 
on the surface, really on your side. And man, we're here because of God's fame. And, and we're, you, you kind of start just kind of let down the borders. You know, you kind of let down your guard. And you're like, okay, great, well, let's talk. And I think for a moment Joshua thought, man, they're with me in spreading the fame of Jehovah. And perhaps maybe for a moment he just forgot to keep asking. I don't know. But I think they were very smart in their deceitful trick here. And they began to get to Joshua and the men of Israel. They talk about God and all that they knew about God. At least from their perspective. Notice something very interesting. In their conversation, in their recollection of all that God had done here in these verses, about verses uh, 9 and 10 and so forth, they don't mention anything west of the Jordan. You notice that? Notice the word east there in verse 10. All they mention are things that happened prior to the Israelites crossing the Jordan. You know why that is? Because if they would have said, we've heard about what's happened since you crossed the Jordan, that would have been information probably about a month old at best. You recall there were 14 days at Gilgal. There were seven days around Jericho. Then there was the battle at Ai they lost. And then the subsequent battle they won. So let's give that a week or two. At best, four to five weeks, that's new information in that region and with those uh, kind of, that kind of trap, uh, communication network. That would have said to Joshua, wow, you've heard some pretty recent stuff. You can't live that far away. Are you with me? So they say, oh, Joshua, we've heard about what God did months and months ago on the other side of the Jordan. See, they're laying groundwork by how they look, what they say, how they uh, appear. All of that is so that Joshua and the Israelites will think, man, these guys are giving me the straight scoop. They really are from a far away country. So they give their report. Another one of their lies is found in verse 12. They talk about their bread, their clothes, their wineskins, how they were new but they're old now. And all that's false. They made them look that way at the beginning. So everything between verses 4 and 13 is built... On deception. Well, verse 14, we have a glimmer of hope that perhaps Joshua and the men of Israel are not going to fall for this ruse. Look what it says. The men of Israel sampled their provisions. Okay, they're going to go the scientific approach, aren't they? We're going to taste it and smell it and see it and handle it. But then the next part of verse 14 is where we find the downfall. Look what it says. But they did not inquire of the Lord... And in this culminating verse, this apex of the Joshua 9 triangle, we find something interesting first time. Listen very carefully. The scientific approach is never enough to discern good and evil. Do you hear me? The scientific approach is never enough to discern good and evil. What you need is the spiritual approach. Now, The scientific approach is not inherently evil and bad. I'm just saying it's not enough. You see, they they checked their samples, their provisions. They were like, hey, we're going to check these guys out. But they left out talking to God. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't run to the strong tower of the name of the Lord. Are you with me? They just handled it from a human perspective. And listen very carefully. When we handle temptation and deception simply from a human perspective, we're ripe for a detour. Because the scientific approach is never enough in discerning good and evil. You and I need the spiritual approach. We must seek God about it. 
Now, as you read that verse, it says that because they didn't inquire of the Lord, apparently, in their opinion, the scientific approach worked. They signed a treaty, and the leaders ratified it. So at the end of verse 15, here we have people who are only 25 miles away now. They're actually in treaty with the children of Israel. Deception worked. And you may be sitting there saying, wow, Todd, I can't believe they, they didn't catch this. I mean, it seems so simple to me. Well, you are reading it thousands of years after the fact, granted. And, and let's just be frank. I think sometimes we underestimate the power of deception. It seems easy on this end, but, but remember the last time you were tricked? The last time you thought that what you saw and felt and touched and heard was real and then it wasn't? Remember that time? For some of you, it may have been this morning. You say, what are you talking about, Todd? Well, how many of you know about Bob McConnell's injury to his elbow? Would you raise your hand? You talked about this morning. He's got a terrible injury over here. He was in his garage last night, slipped on some oil, and fell down and cracked his elbow. Actually, he didn't. He didn't. He's just making you think he did. Stand up, Bob. Take that sling off, would you? Sure, no problem. <laughs> you see, guys, you underestimate the power of deception, don't you? Dave Anson holds out. You got me! <laughs> now, Bob's not that kind of guy to do that to our church. I asked him to do that to show a point. It's important that we don't have a position sometimes in reading Scriptures that we think, well, man, I'd never do that. How'd that happen? Just in this morning's, in a few moments, you believed Bob because of what you saw, heard, and experienced. You just believed. See, sometimes we just believe, don't we? And that's what the devil tries to get us to do. He uses things close to us, things that we know, things that we, we think are handy, things that we think we can trust to deceive us. If you think that's a crazy thought, read 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that even teachers in the church, they're false teachers now, but in that Corinthian church there were people who were masquerading as spiritual authorities. And Paul said they're really just used by the devil who is an angel of light himself. He connected false teachers in the church with the work of the devil. Are you listening to me, church? It's not always as a roaring lion coming in with a growl. Sometimes it's as a deceiving angel of light. And what he uses is everything that you know. That's why the scientific approach is never enough to discerning good and evil. It takes the spiritual approach. The Bible now says the result of their decision in verses 14 and 15 was that, uh, you read in verse 16, they heard about it three days later, and I admire the Israelites. When they realized they had been duped, they didn't go off and sulk and say, well, man, they got us. They went to see them face to face, didn't they? And they said, hey, guys, what have you done to us? You see this in verses about 18 and 19, and most of the Israelites, if you read up through about verse 21, they were ready to, to annihilate them in spite of their covenant and their commitment, they said, hey, if you tricked us into that oath, we're going to break the oath and we're going to kill you. But then Joshua stood up and the leaders and they said, no, we're not going to break our oath. We're going to keep our promise because we made it in the name of the Lord and by the God of Israel. You'll notice that in verse, uh, about verse 18. Most commentators believe that's exactly why they didn't break this oath. Because this oath was not just a man-made agreement. This was an oath that the children of Israel, its leaders, gave to some people in the name of the Lord. Now watch this. They felt so strongly about their co commitment to God 
that they kept it even when man tricked them. That's some serious preaching there. They kept their word because they looked at it as they made a commitment to God. And they did. Also, I want to tell you this, that later in Israel's history, King Saul did the very same thing. He made a covenant with a group of people in the name of the Lord. Later on, he broke that and God punished Saul. I would say to you that in principle, when you make commitments to God, think twice before you break them. Well, don't break them. But are you hearing me? In our society, man, we're just so quick to say, Sure, I will. No problem. I'll take care of it. And then, oh, by the way, I can't. Whether it's in our church attendance, our church membership, our commitment to ministries, our commitment to our families, our spouses, our finances. You can think of a thousand things. But sometimes we, we show very little commitment. The ability to keep promises that really we've made not just horizontally, but vertically. Learn something from the Israelites. Even when they were tricked, they had the guts to say, we made a promise and we're going to keep it. Oh, that today we'd have men who want a handshake would have no doubt about their character. Amen? We don't live in that kind of world today. You've got to sign about 25 things to even hope that you get you know, the, a, a contract made half the time. I appreciate this about the Israelites, that they saw their commitment to God as so important that even in the face of perhaps shame and humiliation, they said, we're going to keep our word. We're going to do what's right. And here's what they did. They obeyed the law. They took these Gibeonites... And Joshua, you know, he, he wasn't easy with them in verse 22 and 23. He says, you're now under a curse. You'll never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And what he did in this case was this. He brought these people into Israel and he let them serve as all foreigners typically served. As water carriers or woodcutters. In other words, what you find in this chapter is Joshua obeying the law. His best intentions were to do the right thing even when those around him had the worst intentions. So he brought these Gibeonites in. He kept his word and he made them part of the the community of foreigners, shall we say. And You'll find that later these very same Gibeonites uh, were actually part of the construction of the temple in Ezra, Nehemiah, and the the book of Chronicles. Uh, They helped construct it. It appears that they actually took their job very seriously and were thankful that they didn't have to die. Look what verse 24 says. It says in this verse, it's 24 and 25, that they feared for their lives and that's why they did this. And verse 25 says, We're now in your hands. Do whatever seems good and right to us. And Joshua did not kill them. I mean, no matter what kind of curse they were under, no matter how bad their job was, it was better than death. Amen? So they're thinking, man, hallelujah, we survived extinction. Verse 27 says, He made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And this is what they are to this day. Let me just share with you one more bit of speculation about the Gibeonites that really points to the magnificence of our God. The phrase Gibeonites and where they come from literally means the given ones. And they were given to Joshua. He made them woodcutters and water carriers and they served in the temple area. We hear of nothing negative about the Gibeonites than the rest of Scripture. We do hear of several positive things. They were part of the, uh, the return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. They helped to build the, rebuild the temple. I tend to think that this, uh, this move here, this, this trick that turned into an agreement, that turned into this nation being engrafted into Israel, 
probably saved this nation, not just physically, but also spiritually. I tend to think that their proximity to the temple and the worship of Jehovah caused this nation to turn. I believe they became believers in what was to come, the Messiah. And that's why you'll find that the Gibeonites, even in their trickery, and the Israelites, even in their, um, in their, uh, how they were tricked and how they were deceived, in both of these situations, God proves Himself as above our ordeals, doesn't He? He stands as even in the, and when the, when men seem to plot their courses and, and do their actions that go against God, somehow our great God takes the, the decisions and affairs of men and works them to His grand purposes. That just proves to me over and over again the sovereignty of God in the middle of man's puny little life. That even when I give in to deceit and am honestly and uh, you know, tricked, and it happens... Or perhaps when people trick me on purpose and, and they're the ones that... Even in both of those cases, God is bigger. And He's not caught off guard by the deceitfulness of man or the cunning craftiness of the wicked one. God is magnificently sovereign. And as you think about your past and your errors and mistakes, you think about what could have happened or what didn't happen, I remind you, that in the midst of our ordeals, God has a way of working out His ideals. Hallelujah, church. Do you remember the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan, the two and a half tribes who didn't want to cross? Do you remember uh, Jericho and Ai? All these things that seem like, man, what an ordeal! But our God is so awesome that He takes our ordeals and somehow, in ways that I can't even explain, God accomplishes His ideals. And all praise to the Father. Amen. Which is why you ought to check in with Him all the time. You ought to do the very thing Joshua didn't do. Remember verse 14? They did not inquire of the Lord. Man, if God has a way of turning our ordeals into His ideals, if if nobody knows the heart like God, then let's make my first decision one in which I say, Hey God, Here's what I'm seeing and hearing and and experiencing. What do you think? Let's inquire of the Lord. Amen? Let's not make this message hard or complicated. Let's just speak the simple truth this morning. If you want to avoid and detour deception, double-check all your details with God. In fact, would you write that down? That's got a good handle to it that we can take with us today. That you can remember it and just kind of carry it with you throughout the week. In fact, would you say it with me? Let's say it passionately as we write that down as well. Here we go. I can detour deception by double-checking the details with God. I was speaking with one of our members from the first service. He came and he said, Todd, it's like you've been reading my mail. I always say I have. You didn't know that? Then he laughs. But here's the point. He said, I was just talking to my job this week about a possible transfer. I knew it's to move. And and I was aware of that in prayer. I was like, God, I hope they want to move. And he said, we didn't want to move. We thought we had to move. And he says, so make a long story short, I was um, talking to someone in my lighthouse. And they just said to me, well, have you prayed about that transfer? And this gentleman said, well, no. It looked like a good promotion. It was... 
financially well. Everything about it seemed right. And this guy said, well, have you prayed about it? He said, no. He said, I will tonight. That night they prayed about it. And then two days later, his boss came and said, listen, I know you don't really want to move, but I thought you'd have to. And he said, how about if we make your next promotion here in Ankeny? You stay right here. And he said, Friday he signed for a promotion here at Ankeny. He's not going to move now. Isn't that awesome? He said, Todd, from the service, I was ready to do whatever it takes to make sure I go with the, with the job because that's the right thing to do from all the man-made perspectives. He said, but then when I prayed about it, God said, I don't need you to move. I don't want you to move. Your spiritual life is a lot more, more, more important than your occupation. And he said, I'll just work it out before you stay right here. And he said, Todd, I'm sure glad I prayed to God as opposed to just checking things out on paper. Amen. You see, I'll say to you what I said earlier. The scientific approach is never enough to discern good and evil. The spiritual approach is what we need. And that's double-checking every detail with God. Does it line up with the Word? Is the Spirit of God confirming this through the Scriptures? Is the people of God confirming this through, through what's happening in my life? Is God on board with this? Is this the will of the Lord for me? Double-check with God. In a word, we call this... Prayer. Now you're thinking, man, I came to church for that. I've been praying since I was knee high to my mom or whatever. Well, I've discovered sometimes it's the basic things that trip us. Because remember, the devil's in the details, isn't he? And sometimes it's the fine print, the small things. It's the simplest things that sometimes we just fail to observe. And in those, we get detoured or off track. Can I just say to you? Praying ought to be your first response when faced with a decision. Inquire of the Lord. Let me show you how Paul put it. You've been looking at it behind me, haven't you? Second Thessalonians five seventeen. Say it with me. Pray continually. How often? That word is a present tense word indicating that we're to pray as a lifestyle. Here's how Paul put it in Ephesians 6. And he's speaking here expressly about spiritual warfare. Look what he said. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Be alert. And always keep on what? Praying for all the saints. One of the best things you can do when you're faced with temptation is to actually pray. I like how Solomon put it in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He said, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding." You see, there's the scientific approach. My understanding, what I see, feel, taste, touch, hear. He says, don't lean to that. Instead, trust in all your heart and, and then in all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll do what? He will make your paths straight. I venture to say that there are people here in this room this morning on the verge of a detour, spiritually speaking, because you've been relying on the scientific approach alone. Can I offer a simple suggestion? Pray about it. Ask the Lord what He thinks. Inquire of the Lord. That's what Paul encourages us to do. It's what Joshua didn't do. It's the most crucial step in our decision making. It's how we double check the details. And in doing so, we avoid deception. Because remember, the scientific approach alone is never enough to discern good or evil. 
You need a spiritual approach. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, is it really that important that I pray? Does it really matter that much? Let me share with you one last example. From our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who on the night of His betrayal spent hours with, the, with His Father double-checking the details. You say, what do you mean, Todd? Go back with me, would you, to the garden. Christ is kneeling. It's dark. His sweat's pouring off His forehead and His face. And the writer says, as it were, great drops of blood. He's in great agony. Temptation is, is just really oppressing Him. And I think in His humanity, that's exactly what was happening. The human part of Christ. He was all man. He was all God. And how divinity and humanity collide, I'm not sure I grasp all that. But somewhere in the humanity of Christ, He felt a pull away from the cross because He prayed, Lord, not my will. How does a a Savior pray that in a garden who's fully God? I don't know. But somewhere in His fully man's side, He felt the oppression of the deceiver, of the wicked one. Maybe there's another way. You don't have to die. You don't need to shed your blood. And somewhere in the garden, the night of this great temptation, Jesus cried out. He said, Father, the human, the man side of me is feeling this. I'm seeing this. Everything around me from my experience, the scientific approach says this is a bad deal. But Father, not my way, but Yours be done. And He prayed to the Father. He double-checked the details. He arose from that, went to the cross, died for the sins of the world, was buried, and 12 men, excuse me, 11 men, said it's over. But because Jesus and the Father were one, three days later, He arose. Amen? Aren't you glad Jesus the Son checked the details with God the Father?